You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you happen to have a Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 4, or if it's on your phone, that's great too, so we can look at this text together. Um, I have flown a plane before. That's a true story, okay? Now, it wasn't like a big, uh, you know, Boeing 737 or something. And I didn't do the hard stuff, the landing and the takeoff. That's really where you need to know what you're doing. But I was 13 years old, and uh, my dad, who was an airline pilot for his whole career, uh, was flying with me and my younger brother from Winnipeg to Montreal in his little Cessna 180. And in between that stretch, there were, you know, long stretches of hours and hours of flying. And so my dad said, hey, why don't you take the reins here, you know? So showed me kind of some of the dials. There's the horizon. You kind of need to keep that in check. There's your altitude. You don't want to see that dropping down, okay? Like, hold that steady. And then you got the steering wheel, essentially, which goes to the left and to the right. And you got pedals down there. I'm just giving you an insight. This is how it works, okay? If you push it, you go down. If you pull it, you go up. That's it, you know? And so away we went. I was flying a plane. He was looking at magazines. I think he took a little nap even for a while, which I wasn't down with that. But I flew this plane for a long time, and I got an insight into what pilots actually do. An insight onto something that's pretty difficult to do for us regular people, but at at different times, maybe in your life even, you've been given an insight, kind of like a backroom view into how something works. Maybe something to you that's very complicated or just something that you didn't know how it works, and suddenly you got a view on how this thing actually gets pulled off. In Genesis 4 here, We are now in a world that is filled with sin. So we looked at it last week about how sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve and how this perfect relationship that they had with God was fractured. And their relationship now even with the world that they are interacting with is fractured. And here we come to Genesis chapter 4. And this text gives us an insight. It gives us a backroom view into the heart of sin, the nature of sin, and how God is ultimately going to deal with sin and how we are to live in this world because of it. And so when we come here to Genesis chapter 4, I just want us all to be prepared for this view. Because when we look at sin, it's a storyline that has touched Every single life in here, every single one of us have been touched by sin. And I can guarantee you that every single one of us were touched by sin this week. That we were involved in sin in some way or that sin has touched us in some way. That is just the nature of the world that we are living in. So when we come to the text this morning, I want to come to it carefully. I want to look at it like clearly because I know that this goes to our very heart of hearts. The things that maybe we're the most ashamed of. The things that maybe we're the most fearful that anybody would know about. The things that have hurt us the deepest are the result of sin in this world and in our lives. So 
Let's begin by looking at the starting point, at where God actually says the origin for all of this brokenness actually comes from. And in our text, we see that the story actually begins with hope. In the first few verses here of chapter 4, Adam and Eve have a child. Eve enters into this miraculous, brand new thing on the planet where she is the first one to have a child. And so she does what only God had done before. God had come onto the scene and had created them and had made them. And now Eve has a child growing within her and Cain is born to her. It's like a hopeful moment. And then like, I don't know, like a year later or whenever that is, uh, Abel comes onto the scene. So a second time she enters into this miraculous thing of a child growing within her and being born. So suddenly they're like a four-person family. You know, they, it's time for a minivan, okay, for Adam and Eve. They got the whole deal going on here. And suddenly into that space, as they grow older, sin is there. So this like raising a family and growing up is tainted now by this brokenness. And it says in verse 3, it says, Over the course of time, so as years kind of go along, sin is seen, but now we're going to see in Genesis 4, things are escalating. Things are growing. And so, looking at chapter 4, starting in verse 3, here's what it says. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what's the deal here? Like why is God accepting one, not accepting another? Is God just like, you know, um, a kid at a dinner table who's just picky? You know, they just, they like this thing and they're going to take that in, but Broccoli, now nah, they're gonna push that to the side. I just don't want that thing. You know, is that all God is doing? Because there's there's not a lot of explanation here as to what's going on. You can kind of leave the narrative a little bit confused. So let's look a little bit closer here at what is happening. What is happening here is is Cain and Abel are not bringing like a sacrifice of atonement, which we'll find about. We'll learn about like later in the Old Testament where someone would bring a lamb or some sort of an animal and would sacrifice for their sins and it would be covered. What they're doing here, actually in the, in the original Hebrew, the, the offering that they're bringing is a tribute offering. It's a tribute offering. An offering that is showing their dedication to the Lord. Their trust in God. And so when these two brothers come with these two types of offerings, which both are valid. Even in the, even in the law that's going to be coming later, there's a, there's a place for animal sacrifice, and there's a place for grain sacrifice. Both are acceptable to the Lord. And there's different sizes of sacrifices. There's a variety going on there. But here we see the two brothers are coming, and in this tribute offering, they are expressing their trust in God or their lack of trust in God. They are expressing what is actually happening at a heart level. 
these things, these sacrifices are an indication of what's going on inside of them. So in the book of Micah, it actually goes through the same process of asking God, like, God, what do you want? So in Micah 6, look at the questions that the prophet Micah is asking. They're very similar to what we should be asking when we look at this text. So in Micah 6, verse 6, it says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? There's the question, like, God, what kind of sacrifice do you want? So then it says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With the, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Like Micah's saying, what do you want, Lord? Do you want like a ton of stuff? Do you want this kind of meat? What, what do you want? And then here's the answer, verse 8. He has told you. This is, this is clear to you, Micah. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah, this is what God is primarily wanting. It's not the sacrifices. It's not the number of sacrifices. Those sacrifices are an indicator of where your heart is. This is what God is looking for. When we come to him in any way, in anything that we're doing, God is secondarily interested in actually the things that we do. They're of importance. What we do, the actions we do are very important. But God's primary concern, what he is first looking at is, what is the heart behind this? Is it a heart of love? It is, a, is it a heart that's rooted in justice? Is it a heart that is rooted in walking humbly before God, the creator? So when Abel comes and brings the first animal, like the first offspring, and the fattened one, like the, the best, right? Abel is bringing the best of the best. And Abel doesn't know what else is coming because this is the first fruits here. And he's taken the best of the first fruits and he's offering them to God. Here's what Abel is. From a heart perspective, Abel is all in with God. When he brings his sacrifice, he is all in with what God is about. And he says, I'm, put, I'm putting the best of the best. I'm putting my complete trust in what God is, is doing and what God is about. My heart is totally committed to God. So Abel is all in. Now listen, Abel is not perfect. There is no perfect human, okay? So Abel, is, his life is also filled with sin. But when he comes to God, he says, my heart is dedicated to God. So maybe you've asked this at times in your life. You know, can I just, um, can I just follow God and he's like an attachment to what I'm doing? Like, do I have to be, you know, crazy, totally into Jesus, like 100%? Or how does this work? And listen, God is gracious from the beginning to the end. And so even people that are out in this world who don't know God, maybe because they don't have clarity of the message of the gospel, or maybe they are completely choosing to reject him, God's grace is still on them. It's called common grace. They can enjoy life. They can enjoy great things. They can even have a wonderful life. And even as Christians, 
We can, you know, come every six weeks. We can, like, say we're a Christian. You know, the scriptures are not a part of our lives. Prayer is not a part of our lives. And God still is gracious towards us. But listen, God wants all of our hearts. God wants all of our hearts. When you see Jesus, the physical manifestation of God walking around on this planet, he is calling people to something that is extreme. I mean, the word radical is maybe like overly used, okay? But he is calling them to something that is a total commitment. In Mark's gospel, chapter 8, he says this, If anyone would come after me, so here's the announcement to people who are listening in that context. If you want to follow me, here's, here's the basic requirement. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is an open invitation to anyone. You don't have to be good at this. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be, you don't have to be all those things. All God wants, all Christ wants is you to be committed to him. For your heart to be after him. Not perfection. Not sinlessness. A heart that is dedicated to the Lord. And Cain, when we see Cain, Cain is the model of someone who is resistant actually to God. He's kind of holding back in his actions. And we'll see it even as the, the story continues. What the the progress of that in his life as God comes to him and asks him and kind of leans into what is going on in Cain's life, Cain just like slowly gets harder and harder and harder towards God. Cain is coming to God with his own perspective and his own ideas. So when it comes to Christ, when it comes to sin in our lives and sin in this world, God is primarily thinking, where is your heart? Where is your heart leaning? Where is it putting its trust? Where is it putting its hope? Because the result then of Cain's life and the result of sin in our lives will be a fruit of death, which we'll see here in just a moment. So when we go into the verses here, we begin to see actually the nature of what sin is like and how it uh, manifests itself in our lives and in the world around us. I looked this week on, I just did like a Google search, okay? Like we all do. Google search, crime in Canada. I don't know if you've ever done that one before, you know? Google search, crime in Canada, okay? And these are some of the ones, this is just, nobody goes to the second page of Google, right? So this is page one, Google. This is just what showed up. A court case for a 28-year-old woman who killed her boyfriend, dismembered him, and dumped everything in a river in Nanaimo, B.C. That's a story from this week. Another one. In Edmonton, a man with a semi-automatic gun and a Molotov cocktail entered City Hall and fired shots with his semi-automatic and threw the Molotov cocktail. You can go down the line of crimes and evil that has happened in people's lives, um, talk to a police officer, you'll see the dark side of what's going on in our society. But listen, that's the, like, that might be the extreme side of things. All of us know that in, on any given day, any given week, 
there are millions and millions of other sins that just go on in, in our own lives, people that are hurt, damage that is done. Roy Bomeister, in his book, is not a Christian, he wrote a book, Evil Inside Human Violence and Cruelty. And in his introduction, here's what he wrote. One starts a work like this wondering, why is there evil? But after reviewing what is known about the causes of aggression, violence, oppression, and other forms of evil, one is led to the opposite question. Why isn't there more evil than there is? This guy's just like studying evil and violence and oppression in our society and is overwhelmed by the wave of it. Just constantly around us. Constantly in people's lives. And here when we come to the story, we see that as Cain rejects God, and as God rejects Cain's offerings, it gives us an insight into how sin actually works. And the first thing that we learn is that sin stalks us. Sin stalks us. So look at verse 7. Jesus, sorry, God comes to Cain and says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God is using a picture here, and he's using the picture of a cat. He's saying, this is what sin is like. It's like a cat crouching at the door. Now, listen, I know there's a, this town is mostly like a, a dog town, so maybe there's like a lot of dog people. We've always had cats in our household, so um, we had cats, you know, all, all around us. And even when we were in Africa, we had uh, a black cat, like totally black, except like his little toes were a little bit white. And um, so at nighttime, you couldn't see him. So we would walk, you know, in between our home and the village, and we could, like, hear rustling in the, in the wood. And we weren't sure, like, is that a snake? Like, is that a leopard? What was that? And then out would pounce out our little black cat, you know? He was stalking us the whole time. He was just, like, watching, and we couldn't see him. But listen, that's not what this is talking about, some innocent little kitty, Okay? The word that is actually used here is like the word for like a leopard or some kind of large cat. And God is saying, Cain, listen, you need to know what's happening here. Sin is like a stalking cat. It's just constantly there. And we live in a world where sin is affecting us from external sources so we are living in the age of the algorithm, you know, where the algorithm knows what you're watching and it will continue to feed you more. Even that one thing that you looked at, that you're like, I should not have gone there. Suddenly the algorithm is just feeding it into your feed constantly, constantly. And then here, from the inside, our own sin and temptation is just constantly stalking us. It's after us. And rather than it being like this little kitty, it's like a lion that is it's wanting to like take us down. And here's what we often think, myself included. I'm just going to leave that little kitty, that little cat over there in the corner. I can, I got this. You know, I can control this thing a little bit. I can see what it's doing. It's not going to, like, catch me that bad. I'm just going to watch it. I'm going to keep it over there. We think we can control it. We think we can master it. 
And God is, in his gracious way, coming to Cain, saying, Listen, Cain, I can see what's going on in your mind, that you think you can control this little area of your life. And God says, It's like a a cat that is crouching at your door. It's stalking you. It's waiting. It's watching to pounce. But not only does sin lurk and wait there, but sin also has a power in our lives. Sin can do destructive things. Now, I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think actually Cain had this goal in his mind that someday he was going to kill his brother. You know, Cain was like 15. He's like, I should make my life goals. One of them is going to be kill Abel. You know, that's going to be in the, in the deck there. I don't think that's what Cain would have done. Most, most big sins in our lives are started by these small little things. It started by allowing sin to just kind of live in our lives. And so a, a, a broken marriage does not start on the wedding day. A broken marriage is slowly chipped away over time. It's allowing the thing to sit there crouched. Problems that aren't dealt with. Personal sins that are kept hidden. Just, just let it be there. It's not going to do anything. And then it bears fruit 10 years, 20 years later, when you see the power of sin in our lives. An addiction doesn't start by just like, you know, I'm 15. I want to look at beautiful women. I'm just going to stop it there. I'm telling you, this is how it starts. Slowly but surely, little pieces, living with this sin, growing comfortable with it. And then we discover, not only has it been stalking us, but now it has this like power over us. And it holds us down. Look at verse 8 then. Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Brother to brother. Killed him. I don't know if he took a stone and hit him in the head. I don't know if he choked him with his bare hands. How it was done, who knows. But here it is, suddenly, brother to brother, murder enters into the world. The power of sin gives birth to death. In James chapter 1, it, it gives us the same kind of plan here. And here's, here's the thing for us to notice. From the earliest days of creation when sin is around, to the New Testament times of James, to today, the plan is the same. There is no change in strategy that Satan is using. There is no change of strategy of sin within our lives. Same game plan that we are getting an insight into. So James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what James says. This is how sin works. It will come into our lives. We give it space. It begins to grow. And over time, it bears fruit. And the fruit is death. And it usually starts with the smallest of things. In C.S. Lewis's book, 
screw tape letters, which I don't know if you've read that one before. I've mentioned it here before. It's this fictional story of these two demons corresponding, trying to take down a Christian. And here's what one of them writes, Wormwood writes to Screwtape. He says, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which is God. It does not matter how small the sins are provided, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. He's just saying, just feed him these little things. Don't, don't try to go for like something big. Just kind of keep feeding them these small little things to edge them away from God. So sin is stalking us. Sin is powerful. But listen, sin has limits. Hear me on this. Sin has limits. In verse 7, God says, Sin is crouching, ready to pounce, but you must rule over it. He's calling Cain, saying, Listen, Cain, there is a way out, actually. You don't have to be given to a life filled with sin. You don't have to be given to a life that is totally committed to the way that is opposed to God and his vision for your life. God, without giving a lot of explanation, says, Cain, there is a way out. You do not need to go down this road. And so for us as well, there is a vision a word of hope for all the sinners in the room, which we all say amen to, because that's all of us. God has made a way. God has made a way for us to live lives that are not completely given to the power of sin. We can live actually within the freedom of sin. And the way that we do that is actually through the grace of God. So God says, this is the, the core issue, is a heart issue, and this is how sin works. But God also says, listen, there is a redemption that takes place through grace. And we've been seeing it every single week, the whole time that God is revealing to us how this world works, that grace just keeps showing up. So look in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. So he begins actually by saying, listen, there are real-time real consequences to your sin, Cain. Not only were your parents cursed and the ground was cursed, but now, here are the consequences to your sin. It's going to be even more difficult for you, Cain, to, to work the ground and to produce something. So there are real consequences to sin, and all of us know that as well. There are real consequences when we choose sin in our lives. And listen, this is because God is perfect and holy and must deal with sin. God, he's not like us who think that we can kind of like work with sin a little bit. God, because he is perfect, holy, and good, must deal with sin. So David Powelson, in his book, Angry God, writes this. 
It's because God loves so intensely that he must get angry. That matters, and it's wrong. Without such anger, so-called love would be a bland, detached tolerance. So God must deal with sin. And so we, all of us, experience the real um, difficult consequences when sin comes into our lives. But God gives grace. And even in this story, Cain comes back to God and says, Man, God, people are going to be after me. Life is going to be too difficult. You know, they're going to try to kill me because I did this. This is not good, God. It's like a bargaining conversation that is happening between God and Cain. And God isn't like, well, you know what? You did this, man. Deal with it. They're going to come after you. That is the price of killing your brother. No, God actually is gracious toward Cain. And he says, listen, Cain, that is not going to happen to you. I'm going to put a mark on you. Everyone is going to know that if they come after you, there's going to be like seven times judgment. So essentially, keep your hands off of Cain. God is continuing to be gracious to God. What is, what is God wanting us to see here in Genesis 4? What does God want us to notice in this text? Maybe you leave this text only seeing murder, sin, judgment, But what is God wanting to do? I remember when my kids were young, like little toddlers, we used to play, um, uh, what was that game called? Uh, Old Maid. Remember that game? Old Maid. Got the card game. Play Old Maid. Yeah, we played that like a thousand times. The cards were so worn out. And you're trying to make pairs and matching up. And as the dad, sometimes I love to see the kids like happy when they're winning and also want the game to end a little faster at times. Okay, so I would have my cards and I would like, stick up a certain card, you know, just like a little bit higher. Not enough for them to notice, but just enough so they're like, I think I'm going to take that one, you know, and then they're like all happy they got it. Just trying to make it like a little more noticeable, okay? What is God wanting us to notice here in Genesis 4? His primary lesson to us is to see his gracious hand at work. The grace of God coming into this mess this mess of sin and murder, into that very situation, the grace of God shines a light on what he's doing. And in Hebrews chapter 11, all the way in the New Testament, it it talks about Abel and it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he he was commended as righteous, but God, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Hebrews reminds us, it says, listen, Abel's life is the life to follow. And you might be saying, why is his life the life to follow? It looks like he's getting the, the short end of the stick. He's dead. Cain's still alive. And here's what Hebrews reminds us. That the grace of God comes to all who will humble their hearts before God. And it says, the road for you to take, the example for you to follow, is the example of faith. Trust that when it comes to our sin, that the way that God wants to actually deal with our sin is through faith. Not through actions. You know, Cain kind of coming in his own way. Cain just doing what he thinks is right in his own mind. And we're coming and thinking, okay, I've got this sin problem in my my life. 
I'm going to, you know, just not tell anybody. I'm just going to go to church a little bit more. Maybe I'll try this week. You know, I'm going to read my Bible for an hour. I'm just going to try harder and harder and harder. And Hebrews says, the way to experience freedom is faith. Faith in a gracious God. And then in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says, this is where that faith is actually anchored, is tied into. It's this, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. So as, as good as Abel's story is, a story of faith, one to look at, one to follow, there's an even better story of someone whose blood was shed. And that is the blood of Jesus, whose blood was shed not just as an example for us to look at and say, that's a great example, but it's actually blood that was shed for us. The grace of God covering our sin. So all the brokenness in our lives is now covered by Jesus himself, not by what we do. We put our trust and our faith in him alone. So this morning, as we switch to communion, we remind ourselves of the work that Christ has done for us, that the grace of God came to us from the very earliest pages of the Bible, and that it's all been pointing, from the Old Testament, it was pointing to one who would come. And then Christ came, and then now here we are, some 2,000 years later, and we're still pointing back to the one who did it. Our trust is still in the person of Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us.